0: Welcome to the Holy Sparks podcast. Our mission is to illuminate the brightest lights in the Jewish world and beyond so that we elevate the Holy Sparks within us and make the world around us a better place. I'm your host, Saul Kay. If you're looking for inspiration, edutainment, or simply want to discover people doing amazing things in and around the Jewish world, you're in the right place. Welcome to the Holy Sparks podcast, ladies and gentlemen. I am excited to introduce you to this gentleman today. And without further ado, let me go ahead and edify Todd properly. So you can learn a bit more about him and we'll get into the meat of it. So leading a dual life as both film producer and Jewish educator, Todd Schatz founded the Personalized Jewish Educational Company, Hebrew Helpers, back in 2005, which now learns with hundreds of families around the U.S. and prepares them to celebrate unique B'nai Mitzvah services. He has been part of 22 films, either as a producer or production executive, including The Grotto, Lazy Eye, and Latter-day Jew. In 2022, he was the consulting producer on the Emmy-nominated series Recipe for Change for LeBron James' company Spring Hill and YouTube Originals on the episode entitled Standing Up to Anti-Semitism. Todd also serves as the Jewish technical advisor on film and TV projects, including the Netflix film You People and now the ABC long-running drama series Grey's Anatomy. So, ladies and gentlemen... Put your hands together for my friend, Todd Shots. Let's go! Oh, that's how we do it. Ladder in the back. In the, let's go! Oh, Todd Shots on a Monday. Uh,
1: I I love I love your energy, Saul. Because like we have to uh, we have to bring it, even though it's just the two of us here in this uh, nice intimate conversation.
0: I love it. I love it. Well, welcome, my friend. How are you doing today? I'm good.
1: It was uh, an intense uh, weekend. I had two bar mitzvah services that I was officiating this past Shabbat. So uh, I'm still recovering a bit. And uh, we have to tell about our connection to one another. For sure. Is that we've gotten to collaborate.
0: Absolutely, absolutely. All right, well, we're gonna get to all the meat and the potatoes and the sauce, and maybe even the labneh, who knows. But let's start with, tell people a little bit about your background growing up and specifically, you know, your Jewish background.
1: So I was born in Philadelphia. And uh, was raised uh, in what would be considered a conservative Jewish household. Uh, we always had fr- a Shabbat dinner on Friday night, and we went to shul on Saturday morning. And I was—I'm uh, a proud Hebrew school graduate. Um, mm-hmm. I did go to day school for kindergarten through second grade, um, so I do credit that a bit with the fact that I was learning the Hebrew alphabet and the English and the, like the Roman al- our regular alphabet uh, at the same time. And I think that that has definitely stayed with me that i have my hebrew connection all the way since kindergarten um, in a formal setting of learning anyway so i uh i i grew up in in i went to public school in philadelphia uh, right outside the city and uh even from uh i guess 10 11 years old uh, the synagogue had this great program it's called Ad- congregation Adith Jeshurun in elkins park and even from a young age, they were, had us, uh, learning to chant Torah with the trope, um, and learning the entire system. And so, uh, it was a great program called the Torah club that was founded by a real mentor of mine, Cantor Charles Davidson. Um, and we, uh, the older kids taught the younger kids. That was the motto. And I think mm-hmm. that a lot of what I've done now in creating Hebrew helpers now, almost, I can't believe it 18 years ago is, uh, is modeled on that type of peer learning, that mentorship, uh, meeting someone where they are and taking them on the next step of their journey. And I, I really think that that is the best way to learn where uh, we talk about that so much in Jewish learning about chavruta, about uh, studying with uh, with a friend, a chaver, right? Who can be your discussion partner and, and uh, partner in learning.
0: I so. love that, you know, I'm just, it reminds me of my kids take Taekwondo And he has the older kids teach the younger kids and it's brilliant because they listen to them more than him naturally. Right. Did you find that? Yeah.
1: A hundred percent. And it's also, we, they were role models, they're role models. Right. And so we were, we were aspiring to be like the older kids who were reading from the Torah, probably some of them once a month, um, having that opportunity, especially on weekday services where they were scrounging for readers to read at the weekday services. (laughs) And, um, and so, by the time I had my bar mitzvah in 1987, can't believe it. Um, I already, I already knew how to read Torah, and so it made it the whole process so much quicker. And then I could spend time on the haftarah and my Dvar Torah and all that. So I do feel that so much of my upbringing at Congregation Adath Jeshurun and from my parents and from such great teachers, uh, especially Elsie Duman was the head of that the Torah reading program under mm-hmm. under our cantor and uh that they really modeled for what it means to engage jewishly um and and i and i think i i still aspire to follow their example
0: i love it great mentors great mentors and also it feels like from how you describe them they really had a love of of kite and jewish learning and teaching and the process too which obviously you have yeah
1: yeah and it was a very tight knit community um many of us lived within walking distance Mm -hmm. And so you would see the same people every week. And I remember being at my mitzvah and all these people who had watched me grow up at that shul, even though they weren't invited guests necessarily, we weren't that close with them, but they were members of our community. And they were shepping nachos, you know, they were Mm -hmm, uh, mm -hmm. feeling that same sense of pride Mm -hmm. um, as many of my relatives because they had been there for, for so much of it. Uh, I then went on to um, university of Pennsylvania and, uh, I studied English and theater, and then always wanted to take some of the Jewish literature courses as well as took four semesters of Hebrew, which I credit with helping me a lot in my uh, my future endeavors.
0: I love it. And so, and you graduated. What was your major? So I was
1: English and theater double major, and and an unofficial minor in Hebrew. I, I took a lot of classes, but I didn't go for the actual minor. Um, and then I moved to Israel for the year after college. I was a, a volunteer on Project Otsma, which unfortunately doesn't exist anymore, but just an amazing was an amazing program where I met some of my lifelong friends and we were volunteers working in different communities. And luckily I was put in different positions in which no one else spoke English necessarily in the jobs that I was working in. And so I was forced to speak Hebrew, which is always good whenever you're trying to learn a conversational
0: language. 100% immersion. Where there's no escape for your brain, you have to just get it. I love it. I love exactly. that. And then, okay. After that, were you, I mean, you, you have such a strong background. Were you considering maybe the rabbinate or cantoral route?
1: I think you started the podcast by talking about my dual life. I, I, I felt as if, if I went to rabbinical school or cantorial school, I may have to give up the other side of my, my life, my life's goals. Yeah. Of, uh, of working in the entertainment world. And so um, I when I got back from from Israel, I moved to New York and went to go work for a company on Broadway. Helping to uh, manage Broadway theaters was the first company that I worked for. And then within a year, I moved to a company that I stayed at for many years that was managing Broadway shows, the, the actual production, which is really what I was more passionate about. And so I found that I didn't have enough money to live in New York City. And I also found that I miss teaching. And so always listen to your mother because I was complaining to my mother about my uh, work life and trying to figure out how I was going to make a go of it and continue in my future life in New York. And she said, I don't understand why you're not teaching some Torah on the side. Why aren't you prepping kids for their bar and bat mitzvah services? And so I put some calls out and I and I ended up working with the new shul in Greenwich Village, which was just starting, a reform synagogue was just starting, and hiring other teachers, training them, and they they hired me in this role of the B'nai Mitzvah coordinator, and I was doing teaching as well, meanwhile working eight shows on Broadway and all day long in the office. And so that's really where I would say about 1998, 99, that's really when this uh, dual life really took off. Um, and then I went on the road for, with the show, with a show for a year, the production of Kiss Me Kate, um, that had just won five Tony awards. And then we took it on the road and I was, it was a great experience of being on the road with that show as one of the two tour managers. And we spent two months in LA and I decided that I didn't want to go back to New York. My brother lives here and, uh, and I, and we really wanted to. Be reunited out here and i uh i moved with no job to los angeles after i mean i finished the road show i was on the the tour for 55 weeks and then i came to la and what's the first thing i did was put an ad in the jewish journal that i give bar mitzvah lessons eventually i went to go work for bruce willis's production company which i think i've told you about before but i yeah and so i was there for several years working in development Meanwhile, on the side, I'm still teaching my students. And I always used to say that if I was if I was stressed out with the film business, I got to recenter myself in what was really important to me in mentoring students. And when I went the parents or whomever or the process of these B'nai Mitzvah services are driving me crazy, then I could throw my <laughs> my energy into my producing work. Uh, so it was a it's been a pretty healthy balance, I think.
0: I love it. Now, there's definitely nothing like grounding oneself in Torah. And then when that starts driving you crazy, have something else, right? It's like Joni Mitchell wrote music and painted for a similar reason. Exactly.
1: And also the thing is, it's all about the storytelling. Mm-hmm. Right? So both in my Jewish learning, as well as in my work in production and development of film and TV projects, I feel like I'm, I'm telling stories all day long and uh and then that way they they blend really well.
0: I love it. Yeah, I think if if anyone is listening and they are a songwriter, a film producer, someone that's looking for story-based content, my friends, look no further than the Torah. There's an infinite amount of turmoil, drama, victory, struggle, every uh, everything. It's all it's all there.
1: I'm always amazed by the Torah, I have to tell you. I've studied most portions of the Torah most of the Parshiot I have studied at some point with a student over these past 20 some years. And I'm always amazed by that each time I approach it, of course I'm in a different place in my journey, mm-hmm. but also I'm experiencing it through the eyes of someone who is unfamiliar with it. And so I always say that it's, it's like watching your favorite movie with someone who's never seen it. And it. so, so you end up that, we discover something new together about the text perfect example is this past weekend one of my students was had the, the parashat kidoshim, and it has the famous line about love love your neighbor as yourself mm-hmm. well most of the time we're mostly talking about how we treat other people but this student is so passionate about combating climate change and so I said Where do you see the correlation between those two? And for the first time that I've I've heard or that he that I've experienced that he wrote this Devar Torah about how to take the steps to combat climate change is one of the main ways in which we can love your neighbor as yourself. And it was just I mean, from a from a 13 year old student who had such insight to connect those two
0: ideas. I love it. And nature is your neighbor. This is absolutely true. It's brilliant. Uh, so sweet. Okay. Tell me a little bit about the origin of Hebrew helpers. At what point did you say, hey, I would like to make, make a business out of this and create a whole community? Talk about that.
1: I already, when I had started here for about the first two or three years here in Los Angeles, I was overwhelmed with phone calls based on referrals, word of mouth. And so I started referring uh, families that I I couldn't, Teach myself to another mentor here in the city. And so we had a relationship, like a friendship and, and a professional relationship that was um that worked out really well. And I had known her from childhood and it worked out. But then Rabbi Sharon Browse of ECAR, who her husband and I have been friends since I was in third grade. I guess he was in fourth grade, but we're only a couple of weeks apart. Uh, she said, We're starting this new community and we're gonna call it ECAR. And you need to start the bar Mitzvah program. Mm
0: -hmm.
1: Meanwhile, I'm working full time at a production company at the Bruce, at Bruce Willis's company. And so I said, this is great, Sharon, but I, I going to need to hire other people because I'm already seeing, I don't even remember six or seven students of, of my own in a freelance way who were either doing a private service or going to Israel or whatever their situation was of why they had contacted me as a freelance mentor. But then if she's bringing another, you know, if Icar if if Icar was bringing another 12 students or so this school year, I'm going to need to hire other people. And so she recommended that I start something because they were just setting up shop and it would be much easier if the families could pay me directly and I could pay them these teachers. And so it was a brilliant idea. And uh, this was in December of 2004. I went home to philadelphia for the winter holidays and uh, it's the only time really the only real time that hollywood shuts down is are those two weeks between uh when the kids get out of school till after new year's day and i'm sitting around the table with my family and uh my little brother says i know what you should call it because i was coming up with a million different names todd's torah tutors um <laughs> I can't remember the other funny names but That's funny. um he said I know what you should call it you should call it Hebrew helpers it sounds fun it sounds inviting it doesn't sound over, overly religious those were his words but I but also it was the idea that everyone c- could have access to the learning and so I love that about the name and of course we get the jokes even this past weekend someone's saying to me about hamburger helper <laughs> um, and I said, well, I don't need, I don't need red meat. So we'll have to be tuna helper, but that doesn't work as well. Um, but, uh, but the, I went and registered Hebrewhelpers.com, which was a new idea. This whole URL and the, the internet was, was pretty recent, right? Cause it was, mm-hmm. this is 2004 mm-hmm. it's before YouTube. When I start thinking mm-hmm. back to that time. Where I didn't have a smartphone. I, I just, it's, it's, it is. It was, the, it was
0: the age of conversation where people did this more. So true. Talked with our hands. <laughs> right? I still talk with my hands on the phone. <laughs> <laughs> anyway,
1: so, um, so then I started hiring some other people to help, help at ICAR. Uh Leah Buckwald, actually. I don't, I don't know if you know Leah. She's, uh, she's still involved with Ecar. Uh, She was the first mentor that that I hired to come on board and we were starting to mentor the students at eCar, But then the word of mouth started spreading to the friends and the families that weren't necessarily members at eCar. And so then and people are calling me from New York and they're calling me from Philadelphia. And so I started to see that there was a real need out there for meaningful, thoughtful, personalized learning, because there are so many students that don't necessarily fit into the mold that's kind of been going on since probably like the 1940s till recently where every student has to sort of learn the same way with memorizing Mm -hmm. things and fitting into the cookie cutter of a service at that established community. And while I really value the community and I really valued my experience and my experience was very much that of fitting into the community that I was uh, a member of, Mm -hmm. but it's not for everybody. So then Mm -hmm. what happens to the rest of the Jewish community especially if a student has any type of learning or social difference what 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 happens to their process i've had families call me and say we decided to just take jewish learning off the table because we're dealing with we're dealing with regular school and that is going really it's not easy for our child and so we're just going to table this until we can figure it out well unfortunately a lot of times that doesn't happen if it wasn't part of a program and so we're getting those calls where a family says we've we've gotten all of the you know, the study skills intact, you know, where we're ready to go with, with regular school, but we're now too late to join some of these institutions. And mm-hmm. so, what do we do? And we are like, mm-hmm. give us 12 to 16 months and we will have a wonderful learning process that will culminate in a very personalized Barb missile Service, not based on the requirements that someone else had set up, but the requirements mm-hmm. of what we feel will prove to have the student feel a great sense of accomplishment, a great sense of connection to their Jewish identity. That's what we're going for more than just the technicalities of did we cover every single prayer that's supposed to be in that service. And uh, at the same time, we do have standards. So there definitely we are uh, we wanted to set up the we set up the expectations of everyone who's attending the service Mm -hmm. who are coming there someone may need to say mourner's cottage that's in every service right if it there's always an Amidah, right certain things that a community who may be knowledgeable will will want there to be in a service we of course want to provide that because i always say to family uh, family members and, and guests that come up to me after a service and they said i needed this today right right the the aboutments service especially a personalized one it can feel very centered on that family and the student, which is good, but also mm. you brought in all of these other people to the space. What an opportunity to give them an experience and, and meaning and learning and celebration and, and, and spiritual inspiration of some sort.
0: hundred percent. Just a quick anecdote. I did an independent B'nai Mitzvah yesterday on a Sunday, which was very interesting. Oh, we talked, we so talked about that. You and I, I talked about yeah, that. And, yeah. And one of the, 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 Professional teachers at the, my kids' day school came up to me today. To to your point, she said, "Oh, it was so nice to be able to say cottage for my father yesterday in a minion." So to your point exactly, right? Yeah. So it sounds like one of the things that you that I wanted to ask you is, you know, why are people choosing independent b'nai mitzvahs? And you addressed a lot of that. One of the main things I heard from you was there's kind of a particular timeline that congregations maybe need to have kids on because they're so large, or they want to do it right when they turn twelve or right when they turn thirteen, things like that. So that's one of the main areas of benefit and flexibility that you guys offer. Also, you had mentioned kids with learning disabilities or learning challenges, kids that don't fit into a particular community. What are the reasons are people choosing B'nai Mitzvahs independently outside of that?
1: One, one of the reasons is they may be doing a destination service and it might not yeah. be that their home community can provide the preparation or the planning for a service that's, say, happening in Israel or the, mm-hmm. the, that's not during the synagogue Israel trip, You know, if there is a an uh, organized mm-hmm. trip that's happening. It may be that they're doing a destination that is not just as Israel. Israel is a, a little bit easier because a lot of people are going there to do uh, bar and bar mitzvah services. But it may be th- we I've I've done services in Venice, Italy. Uh, I was I was just actually I'm planning one that I'm doing this winter break in uh, Turin, Italy. There a family that lives there but is originally from San Francisco. I'm I've I've done services at the um historic synagogue in Shanghai. Wow. Uh, the the uh the Spanish synagogue in Prague. And so there's families that are planning these beautiful destination with just spring break. We had three families that went to Israel and we had one family that went to Hawaii, and we had one family who lives here in Los Angeles, but the grandparents are in Philly, and so I traveled with them to Philly, where we're all from originally, and, and uh, led the service there with my student who I trained here in Los Angeles. So there's all sorts of reasons why families are coming to us if, it's a, say, it's a destination that's not just in their home community. The other reason is that it may be that that family is looking for a more, more personalized service. We have a lot of families. I would say more than 50% of our families are synagogue members, are members of communities who they, either they were day school family or a Hebrew school family mm-hmm. and the learning and everything went well, but they've decided that for their, for that student, that they are looking to do something where the student would either get to do more or do less or, or whatever, whatever the reason is. Mm-hmm. They always come to us saying we want them to do less and I'm always, and I, I, we always surprise them with like how much content we're covering because most of our preparation is one-on-one. Think about how much you can accomplish one-on-one in a 12 to 16 month period. Mm -hmm. Obviously for day school students, we, we tend to do a little bit shorter because they're coming to us with Hebrew decoding skills. They're coming to us with most of the prayers accomplished and we're mostly working on Torah portions and, um, and speeches, but what people also may not realize about our program is that we are not just doing bar, bar mitzvah prep. We do personalized Jewish learning and what I like mm-hmm. to call Judaism 101, Jewish life mm-hmm. skills, Jewish life skills. What what I say to all of our mentors, what do you want to make sure you've imparted to that student in mm-hmm. potentially their only formal type of Jewish learning that they're going to do in their lives before they, before they, you're not teaching, you're not their, their mentor week to week. What do you want to make sure that they know? And so it came up recently where I'm covering Pesach mm. with a student whose bar mitzvah is the next week, but I didn't have him last year. Mm-hmm. And said at Pesach, how can I how can I not cover Passover mm-hmm. so that he will have a feel a connection to that as a thirteen year old? Because he, he he was a Hebrew school kid, but he he learned about it more in like third and fourth grade, especially with the pandemic. A lot of the students who were in fifth and sixth grade didn't get that much time with their teachers or it was on Zoom um, in a big class setting. Zoom has actually worked really well for us because it's one on one or one on two or something like small group. Zoom works so well. But a lot of these kids were going to 24, 24 student classes on Zoom I feel terrible for those teachers. I can't even imagine what that was like during that time. But so, yeah, so he, I didn't cover it. So I said, I know that we are doing final speech prep and we are doing, we are practicing your Torah portion, but I want to talk about the story a bit and how it is so relevant to our lives today and how people practice and what's sort of the landscape of practice as far as Pesach, because it's my favorite holiday. And of course, Mm -hmm. why is it my favorite holiday? Because it has to do with so much storytelling. Mm Mm-hmm. And that the Seder is not supposed to be a locked event experience. It's supposed, it is supposed to feel spontaneous and fresh mm. and, and that everyone can have that sense where they engage all of their senses to go on the journey together. And so in my Seders that I do in Philly every year for my family, we, uh, we do Mad Libs and we do plays and songs and interactive kind of stuff. and, uh, and I encourage people not just to do the Maxwell House, uh, begin from page one and
0: <laughs> right, suffer through. <laughs> suffer through, and just like blind, like just go. Have through. a slavery <laughs> experience in the actual Seder. Yes. <laughs> well, and actually, and that, that, that
1: that Haggadah doesn't really talk about the story. It like talks around the story, the traditional text. And so I think it's so important. And we have yeah. props and costumes and the whole thing. And I love um, that. So, yeah.
0: How do you. A choose mentors for the company and B, how do you match up mentors with kids? How's that talk about that process?
1: So Hebrew Helpers now is I think in eight different regions. It may be okay. 10. I have to I have to add them up in my head. But we are um we have mentors in Philadelphia, we have mentors in uh New Jersey, the DC area, New York, uh, and Boston, and all over California. So So we try to regionalize it as far as the as the mentoring, because we would love for there to be a major in-person component to it. That's Mm -hmm. always been a part of our model. We were not an online. We weren't started as an online company. Of course, with the pandemic, we ended up transitioning so beautifully online and it, it worked. It works really well. And now we're still incorporating that a lot because why not? It's so efficient. And but I encourage everyone to make it more of a hybrid experience where. They're going as often as they can in person and then um, using Zoom to supplement or also sometimes if a parent can't be at home because we always require there to be a parent or guardian to be in the home when we come to teach. And so it could be that a lesson can happen even at a time where the parent is at home because we can do it on Zoom and we can do, we can we can have our session on Zoom. So um so we try to be in person as much as possible, but sometimes that's not possible at all. And so we um, we have some students in Florida. We have some students in Texas. We're teaching some students in Michigan, uh, Seattle, Washington, Vancouver. Right. And so it it ends up that we don't have mentors in all those areas. So those are primarily Zoom. We try to figure out a time where the mentor and the students can meet uh at some point during the process. And then of course the family is kind enough to fly the person in and put them up and all that to do the ultimate service. But finding mentors is the hardest part of the whole process, because of course, just like when I'm casting a movie, casting is, you know, and even, and finding our designers and 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 finding the right project by, the, by a writer that really speaks to our souls, you know, that I, that I want to you know, empower their story in my producing work. It's, it's the hardest part. I always say casting, you know, it's like find the right people. The thing is, if you put the word out and we're giving an experience both to the mentor and the students that they really value, and a lot of teachers that have, we've approached to come and be a part of our group, they really value this kind of teaching because we're, we're not micromanaging them. We're mm-hmm. saying you are an experienced educator. You have a great soul about you, about how you approach text and how you approach and you really get students. We, I, I'm always looking mm. for mentors who really speak to students, not down to students, not at students, mm. and who are not interested in just doing rote Barnabas and and bar, Mets Preparation, where they're just memorizing and drilling. And we really, mm. I always say, if you're going to do a prayer or a song or Torah verse more than once in a session, have a reason to do that. Point out something interesting in the text. Mm-hmm. Give some context, some intention, something, a little kavanah to the practice. Of course, the keba, the, the, the hard work, the practice is so important, but the kavanah, the meaning behind it, the intention, when that's blended together, that's when the real learning happens.
0: I love it. You know, I taught music for 15 years uh, before going on the road. And what I learned in that process was it's actually 95% about relationship with the student and 5% content you know maybe with Hebrew helpers it's more like you know 80 20 but it's really that mentorship that connection that drives everything and if if you if you don't care enough about the kids it will it doesn't work no matter how talented you are right or how brilliant you are
1: there's an amazing quote by Bar- right. Barbara Carlson who was an educational pioneer who talked about how people learn things they care about from people they care about they know care about them right mm-hmm. so it's all the care and all of the interest in the task at hand and the connection between the people is where the magic happens.
0: Absolutely, I love it. Okay, so you talked a little bit about some of the the challenges in the work, you know, really finding the right people.
1: We're looking for mentors. We're looking for mentors everywhere. Call us, call us Hebrew helpers.com.
0: Okay, we're looking for mentors, currently hiring. In any particular area or just all over? We 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 are interviewing
1: people all over the United States because we get when we get calls, then we can can have that person start, which is awesome.
0: Okay. Love it. I definitely can refer you to some people for sure. So talk to me about this. So ECAR reached out to you to run their B'nai Mitzvah program, which turned into this, which is really interesting, right? Because a lot of communities may be threatened by an independent B'nai Mitzvah organization because maybe they think it's going to take away members or it will soften the culture or, or do something negative. So talk about how you positively impact the communities that these Kids and families find themselves connected to. So people can hear a a positive side of it.
1: Yeah. I mean, it's all been positive, I have to say. Because, well, maybe in those initial years, people had a little bit of trepidation about what are you doing exactly over there? But it really has almost never been that. So many people have worked with us over the years that are now educational directors of you know, of institutional communities and things like that. So people are very familiar with the sort of high content, the 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 thoughtful approach that we take and the amount of time that we require, because we have a lot of families call us and say, can you do a bar mitzvah in three months? And we said. It might be possible, but not with us, mm. we, we, we just mm. give us another at least nine months to go through the whole holiday cycle and all of that. Most of the synagogues in uh, Los Angeles refer us families all the time. I was mm. I was on with an educational director. On Friday, right before Shabbat, and she was telling me about a family that is long our longtime members, and the the program is just it's not a match for exactly how they do it in this big synagogue, and they still want to have the service there, but could we come in and supplement and 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 teach the student? So that's one call we get from the communities where we're we're going to come and be a value add. We're going to be a there a, a, a supplement mm-hmm. um, to hopefully provide uh, assistance to that student um in their process but also some families call us independently of the the community recommending and they say we just want some more mentorship more the rabbis and cantors have so much to do in a in an, in an existing community they're doing sure. weddings and funerals and dealing with the Hebrew school and the day school and the preschool I, I i can't even imagine the amount of demands on their time and so then they're also leading the services so of course they don't have as much time to, as we would let's say with bar with students, but this is the only thing that we do. We do personalized Jewish learning. And we start actually as early as, as like, we have some students that are eight, nine, 10 years old, where we're doing Jewish learning in a small group in their home with, you know, often a parent will be there. There's always a parent in the house, but like there'll be a parent there. There'll be different families coming together. And so we do a lot, so we do a lot of that. Most of the referrals we get from existing synagogue communities are because a family's called them and the student doesn't have enough time before they would turn thirteen, or even in their thirteenth year, to go through that whole program. And I would say kolakavod to the and, you know, thank you and great honor to these other edu- educational colleagues of ours to say I don't want to just leave this family stranded because we can't because that that community can't help them. They instead refer them to us, and we're getting referrals in D.C. all the time. We get referrals to New York, Philadelphia. People are sending us. Tons and tons of people, rabbis, cantors, saying, "Call Hebrew Helpers," because they see that it's all for the good of the Jewish people. Mm-hmm.
0: I love it. So, ideally, you talked about some situations where they call you three months before, or you know, the, the panic, the panic B'nai mitzvah family. But what is an ideal time frame for you to work with a family, so people have a sense of a optimum situation? Yeah,
1: twelve to sixteen months is is what we always recommend. Um, obviously, we'll we're happy to have more time than that. But our process works really well, especially if they'll give us 16 months. We always ask them about their upcoming summer plans, you know, just to see what's going to happen so that we, we can maximize that time that we have with them. And most of our most of our students just meet one hour a week.
0: OK, one hour for that entire time.
1: Yeah, everybody learns Hebrew. Everybody learns trope. They learn prayers. We go over Bible stories and ritual and text and and history and. Try to go over as much as we possibly can and, and integrate it into the learning. I always say the learning is in the tangents. Student asks a question, jump on that question right that moment and 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 talk about it or research together. Or, or sometimes we have students who have a lot of questions. And so I encourage my mentors to create what's called the parking lot, we call it, where they where we, you know, acknowledge the interest of that student, but you may not be able to work on that subject right at that moment because you had other plans for the lesson and you also have your eyes on the ultimate goal of, of getting to that service and so i have students actually who have met with me after the process to cover some of the things we didn't get to in the parking lot
0: amazing i love it that's a great concept i'm going to use that with my own children Immediately. <laughs> <laughs> well,
1: and Saul, you didn't say that you have been a part of some of our services. We haven't talked- I
0: have, I've been, it has been with great joy and Simcha to be part of your um, wildly unique services, which I love, right? I'm, I'm, I mean, I live out of the box. So anything that's moderately out of the box, I'm, that's, that's my happy place. And yeah, and your mentors that I worked with were all very knowledgeable, very fluid, very flexible, and really cared about the families great combination to have
1: that's what we hope for that's what i was going to say that that's what we hope for because also what you may have noticed about the way that our mentors were officiating the service is that we're always teaching throughout mm-hmm. giving context rather than just saying page seven micha mocha you know and and nobody has any idea of what this is about why not just give right. a couple of sentences about some background of that prayer and what we might want to be thinking about or feeling at that moment of the prayer and where it fits into the service and to feel the build of the service. The services, our, our services are beautifully structured. And so mm-hmm. that's why we also, when we sit down with a family and we're gonna personalize the service, we'll go through, we'll, we'll show them a sort of a template of the traditional service, and then we can mm-hmm. interpret them and, and, and play with it a bit.
0: What do you see as the future of B'nai Mitzvot in, in the Jewish world. How do you see this all evolving looking ahead? I mean, I don't have a crystal ball
1: and neither do you. I don't know, you know, like I, I don't know exactly, but I do know that our what our goals are. Our goals are to give students that feeling of connection to their Jewish heritage, to their history, to practice, so that they will always be able to access it in their adult lives that maybe they'll walk into Hillel. I get a lot of text messages from students asking me, which service should I go to uh, there at at college? And that they'll feel a connection to Israel, that they'll feel a connection to Jewish people that they meet in their lives and have this shared experience. I remember that so much from my experiences in USY or from going on Alexander Musk High School in Israel to studying at Penn and the Jewish Jewish studies department to ultimately living in Israel during that year for Project Otsma. And now I get to go to Israel all the time, which is so incredible to see family and friends and work on my Hebrew. And yeah. And so I, I do think that. The goal should be to make accessible. Jewish learning to anybody who's interested and so that's one of the reasons that I started a nonprofit in 2019 called the Mitzvah Learning Fund, that offers uh, grants to anyone looking for a personalized Jewish learning experience. I don't think there's any other place in the Jewish world to apply for a grant for a one-on-one, one-on-two, small group experience with a with a teacher, and for a lot of families that is their op- that's the option that they're looking for. Mm-hmm. Yet. The finances of that may be out of their reach, mm-hmm. and so the Mitzvah Learning Fund is providing these grants. They're seed grants. We want we want the family to have buy-in as well. Um, I started it. I'm not on the loan. I'm, on, I'm not on the um, grant committee. I'm not on the. Um, I'm just. I raise money for it because I think it's so important, and and families don't have to go through Hebrew helpers. They can use any type of personalized Jewish educational source. Um, and I was saying, I was almost said loan because we were talking about the only other place that you, if you needed to underwrite the Jewish education for your child would be to go to Jewish free loan, but then you, you I mean, you have to pay it back. So like, there's no place where it's just, here is the, here are these funds. Go learn.
0: Mm -hmm. I love that. That's great. What's the website for that? It's mitzvahlearning.org. Okay. It's a
1: 501c3. People can donate and of course apply for, uh, for the grants.
0: I love it. Okay, well, with the little time we have left, I want to transition a little and talk about the other part of your life. So, talk to people about your your role as a film producer and Jewish technical advisor. Never heard that term before. Talk about that.
1: I'll I'll start with the producing. Um I I I had the opportunity to work on a, a lot of studio films at the beginning of my career. A lot of films that I enjoyed working on, but weren't necessarily the films that I was passionate about making. There were a lot of action films that I got to work on, some really cool stuff, everything from like the fourth installment of Die Hard to Sin City to horror movie, horror films, which I'm still too scared to watch. <laughs> it was really, I learned so much during that time about filmmaking, about putting projects together, building teams. And so that when Hebrew Helpers really took off, I saw that as an opportunity to leave that production company that I was at and start my own work. And I had the opportunity to go and produce a pilot at Showtime that was about coming out. And mm-hmm. so that's the other part of my life that we haven't talked about also is I'm very active in LGBTQ plus rights and activism, especially where the, it intersects with Jewish identity with an organization called JQ that is probably the largest Jewish LGBT Jewish LGBTQ plus support services, social service organization in Southern California. I've been the chair of their board for of the board for a long time. And uh, luckily, some other wonderful people have stepped up in the past couple of years. I'm more interested. So I I made that pilot at Showtime. The show didn't go, but it was a real turning point for me where I decided to dedicate myself to projects that I really care about, that either have a Jewish story, story storyline, have LGBTQ plus storyline And I started finding the right collaborators to do those projects. And so I partnered up with a great friend of mine, Tim Kirkman, who is an award-winning writer-director who I had known since the 90s when we were both living in New York City. And we reconnected in 2015 to produce Lazy Eye Together, which I always tell him this, it's my favorite thing that I've ever worked on. Why? I just think it's it's a beautiful film it's beautifully shot it's beautifully told written acted the actors we've cast actors that we thought were really good for the roles rather than how they looked on paper for sales mm-hmm. and um and and a lot of it is it's a, a lot of it is a two-hander a lot of it's the two of them speaking and interacting it's a it's a story about reconnecting after many years a couple a, a gay couple that were a couple 15 years earlier and they reconnect after many years to revisit what is the vision for their lives, Ooh. and so it's called Lazy Eye, and um, you can find it still. It's on it's on Amazon. It's it's on iTunes. It's it's everywhere, um, but it's really um, it was a very authentic portrayal of how two gay men interact with each other, and we don't always see that, and I, and it it's not the same, right? There's there is definitely something unique. About two men in a relationship with one another. And of course it came from Tim's own personal experience. I mean, it's not an autobiographical piece, but it came from his own insights into being an out gay man. Anyway, it's just, it's a beautiful, it's a beautiful film. We went all over the world with it. I got to go to the Hong Kong LGBTQ plus film festival with it. It was
0: cool. Mm Oh, I love it. Okay. Yeah. That was definitely literally my next question. What are you most proud of and why? And you just answered it. <laughs> so this is good. We're definitely in sync. I mean, I'm okay. so
1: many things that I have worked on, you know, because each one of these projects is like your baby, you know, like you yeah, just sure. love it and you care for it and you tend to it. And you're always, as a producer, I'm working on I'm I'm I you're working for maybe a year to two years to three years before the project, and you're working on it during production mm-hmm. and then post and then into distribution. I still talk about Lazy Eye probably every week in dealing with things about it. And that Mm -hmm. was released in 2016. Mm -hmm. So I went on to do a movie more recently. There was a documentary called Latter-day Jew, which you mentioned at the beginning, which is a documentary Mm -hmm. about a gay Mormon comedian who converts to Judaism right after he survives cancer. And now when we meet him at the beginning of the documentary, he's decided he wants to become a bar mitzvah before he turns. I think he's, like, about to be 35. Wow. And so we go on this whole journey with him. It's a wonderful movie. That one also is actually about to be distributed. It went on an enormous festival trail and synagogue communities, and we're continuing to do that. It's about Mm -hmm. to be distributed uh, because we got sort of lost in the pandemic of the Mm – we we, we had – screenings that were supposed to happen right then in March, Mm -hmm. April of 2020. And so so a lot of the projects I'm working on do have causes to them and Mm -hmm. and something that I really want to leave behind, you know, as as part of my legacy and all of that. I got to work just recently, most recently, on a film project called The Grotto, which is the writing and directing debut of the Tony Award-winning actress, Joanna Gleason, who's a, a really dear friend of mine. And it was so important. She made her directing debut at 71 years old
0: Wow! writing
1: directing debut and it turned out the movie is beautiful we've played four film festivals so far and we won awards at all four of them I'm gonna brag Mm -hmm. on her behalf and uh and we have four more festivals to play and then hopefully it will soon uh be swallowed up by a streamer too so that the world can see it Mm -hmm. and while we were making the grotto I got a call from Kevin Mischer, who is a very big film producer and a wonderful man, also a Penn alum. I went to you, Penn. I don't even know if I said that. Mm-hmm. He said, we're making this movie called You People for Netflix. And it's Kenya Barris, the creator of Blackish, and Jonah Hill wrote the script together. And it's about an African-American woman who falls in love with a Jewish guy. They fall in love with each other. Mm-hmm. And how their families clash and connect and ultimately... It's a comedy. It's a crazy, broad comedy. It got, it was, Kevin said, we want to stage a Yom Kippur scene. And most of the designers and technicians that are working on this have never been to a Yom Kippur service. And so he's, of course, Jewish, but he wanted someone to come in and help guide the design process as well as the staging of it. And so that is when my role as a Jewish technical advisor was born. I love it, and I I wanted it to be technical advisor because I wasn't involved in the development of the script. I wasn't involved in most of the rest of the movie. I was involved in the Yom Kippur scene, and I was involved in a scene in which Rhea Perlman and Julia Louis-Dreyfus had to speak Yiddish to each other. That move, that scene, unfortunately, got cut out of the movie. It was hilarious. Mm-hmm. It's not in the ultimate film, but those two scenes are why I was there on set, and I helped everything with that Yom Kippur scene from how it should look. To hiring a rabbi in cantor. I also—I don't know if you saw it—I'm also a rabbi in the scene, standing up the, standing up on the bima. Wait, out.
0: which service in Yom Kippur is it?
1: So it's a—it's the—it's the morning service. They're singing like shacharit. It's shacharit, and they're they're singing the vidui, the oh. confessional prayer. <laughs> okay. And um,
0: right.
1: and so I'm teaching 254 extras to pound their chest lightly. I kept saying lightly. Right. Your fist. tap, tap your heart. Tap, yes. tap. And, uh, but it was during COVID too. So it was really intense because there were so many protocols mm. and everybody's in face shields and masks and everything. And of course, the moment that the movie doesn't take place during COVID. So the moment that we were about to shoot and everybody was tested and it was, it was very intense in that way, mm. but very lovingly portrayed, like they really wanted it to feel like a Yom Kippur service. And so I, uh, yeah, Kenya was very collaborative with me on, and trying to make it feel authentic. And so I, I suddenly felt like there is real, a, really a role for me to play as a Jewish technical advisor to to see for how great it is for the audience to see themselves reflected on on the screen who are who are Jewish or building familiarity for our practices and mm-hmm. and rituals so that I mean with familiarity breeds love and and bridges and you know like between people and so. Mm-hmm. I, I think it's a really important work. And so then I then I then that was right after that, I started working on Recipe for Change, which was the series for YouTube. That one originally brought me on as a Jewish consultant, but then very quickly it morphed into a consulting producer job, uh, role because I ended up working on for almost seven months mm-hmm. uh, during that episode in which we had celebrities and people talking about their Jewish identity and also talking about ways to stand up to anti-Semitism.
0: Great episode. I just watched it and it will make you hungry. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Cause it's a cooking show recipe for change. <laughs> yeah. Oh, I love it. Okay. So now talk about how did this segue into Grey's anatomy or was that overlapping?
1: No, it was actually a year later. So you mm. people premieres on Netflix. It's one of their highest streamed movies in Netflix history. Uh, that was in, and that was in January. Of course it received It was very controversial in the Jewish community, which I acknowledge. Again, I wasn't involved in anything other than those two scenes, but I do think that some of the reaction feels unmerited for what it was because it wasn't trying to be a documentary about the entire landscape of Jewish practice. It was, it's a broad comedy about Jonah Hill's experience in the Jewish community and Kenya Barris's experience in the Black community. It Mm -hmm. wasn't. Right. And, and it's a broad comedy. So everything is going to be played for played up, played for. Laps, right. And so right. I, I had a good time watching the movie and I was I was thrilled to be involved. That movie premieres. Oh, three days later, I got a call out of the blue from the unit production manager of Grey's Anatomy saying that they are have a Jewish storyline. And would I come and help them with it? I said, oh, is this because of you people? He said, no. He said, Sharon Browse's sister-in-law is his sister-in-law i know him already uh through yeah. the thing but mm-hmm. had said oh you have a jewish storyline you should call todd mm-hmm. and so it wasn't connected but it must have been in the it was because his sister-in-law had seen on facebook and everything that i had been involved in new people and so he calls me and says there is a 13 year old patient at grace loan memorial this is episode fourteen of season nineteen. Believe it or not, the show has been on for nineteen years, and I have watched every episode of that show since it started on the week that it was on. Wow! I'm an uber fan. I it's one of the shows that I kept. I kept with it all up through all the ups and downs. So it was incredibly meaningful to me. I thought I I thought I wasn't hearing him correctly when he when he said,
0: <laughs> "Is this a prank
1: call?" I said, "Do do do you know that I watched every episode of the show?" So I I was gonna coach the 13-year-old student who, the 13-year-old patient, who was having some kind of abdominal issue and they have to do a CT scan and he's very nervous in the dark, in the scanner. And so the doctor, uh, played by Jake Borelli, Dr. Levi Schmidt, who is the Jewish character on the show, says to him, why don't you hum something or sing something to calm your nerves? And so he starts to sing his Torah portion Mm -hmm. And so...
0: Which was Va'ikra, was it?
1: No, it was actually from Va'era. Va'era. Yeah, Yeah. it was a portion um, that the writer, the writer-producer of the episode, Jamie Denbo, well, she wasn't the writer of credit of that episode, but she's one of the main co-executive producers of the show. It was her son's Torah portion, which, guess what? Hebrew helpers had led. Um, And so, again, another small world of a little bit a lot of shared stuff going on here, you know? And so while, so I was coaching the student, Colin O'Brien is the, is the actor who was cast in the role. I actually was brought on before he was officially cast. Mm. Uh, And they said, we'll have the actor's name for you on Friday. He's shooting on Monday or something like that. It was something that quick. Mm. And so I met with him the day before and coached him on zoom. He had already learned the verse for the audition. He was pretty close. He was about, I would say he was about 80% good on the Hebrew. And we just tweaked the tune a little bit, and we and I made sure that all of his <sighs> is <a laughs> mm-hmm. we're, in, we're in the right places. and we became instant friends on that Zoom session and and his mom as well. she's wonderful, Christine. And the two of them felt so empowered to do that or so dedicated to doing this right because they didn't go out, grow up with Jewish backgrounds. And so it felt. I felt like I was building such a bridge here just within the cast and the crew that were trying to make sure that this was done authentically. And so he was good to go. I came to set that next day and I said to him, he's like, I've never seen a Torah. So I brought a Torah to set with me. Mm-hmm. Um, I just, I brought, I have a travel Torah that's about, it's a kosher Torah, but it's about two feet tall and it fits in a, it fits in a backpack. And I wrap it in a big tally to make sure it's safe. And I brought it to set with me. I had to clear it with production and everything. And then during his educational time, we took it out and we 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 looked at the Torah. I I showed him where his part is and all of that, mm. even though, of course, he can't read the Hebrew. And then while I'm there for the shoot that day, uh, the unit production manager, Gary Rake, comes into me and says, the next episode, they've decided that he's going to become a bar mitzvah in the hospital chapel. And would I consult on the next episode? And I said, are you joking? This is a dream come true. We're going to stage a Hebrew helper's bar mitzvah at Grace Loan Memorial. Amazing. And so I ended up what turned into just this sort of two or three days that I was supposed to work on it ended up becoming a two month on and off of consulting on both episodes 14 and 15 of season 19. And then of course, they asked me in that first meeting if I would be the rabbi in the scene. So you can also see me on that episode. So totally a dream come true that I not only got to work and consult and coach Hebrew on the show, but I, I ended up leading the Bar Mitzvah service.
0: I love it. It's like the ultimate coming together of your worlds. like, it couldn't have happened more perfectly. Yeah. Definitely bashert, which for those of you that don't know what that word means, it means like meant to be like, they often say that when you meet your, your spouse and it, you know, destiny, destiny, yeah, destiny. Yes. Unfortunately, we do have to wrap up, although there's so much more to talk about, but my one question I want to ask you, which I ask every artist that's on the Holy Sparks podcast is what do you think the Jewish world needs most now and why?
1: more understanding of each other, more, more listening to other people's experiences. I find that so much can be solved if we actually will listen to someone who is different from us within our community, whether that's in the political spectrum, whether that is in people from different backgrounds. And I I also see what's going on in Israel is so much about not listening and not understanding each other. And and so much of the conflict could be cut down if people would sometimes put their egos to the side and just have an open heart. And I, I think about that a lot for the LGBTQ plus community within the Jewish community and how there has been so much more acceptance, but the work is not done. And the work is not done for all that I was just saying, for all the ways in which we draw boundaries um, whether it's you're a synagogue member, you're not a synagogue member. All, why are we Why are we playing by those rules? Can't we just be open?
0: I love it, Nachon, and as they say, Shamati. I hear you, brother. So Todd, I want to thank you so much for your time. I know you're oh, a very thanks. busy man, <laughs> and this has been a pleasure. And I just want to give you a blessing that Hashem should continue to bless you in your work, both on and off camera on and off the Bema. It should be filled with joy, deep meaning, deep connection, and you should continue to serve the Jewish community as you have for so many years. And I really appreciate what you're doing in the world, my man.
1: Great to see us all. And I, I'm we're looking for us to lead a service together.
0: It will happen. Thank you so much for tuning into this week's episode of the Holy Sparks podcast. I'm your host, Saul Kay. Please subscribe to the channel. It helps us more than you know. Drop a review. Share this with friends and family, people you think would enjoy the content. And we'll see you on the next episode.